Manasseh, thank you for coming and uh, bringing the fire of the gospel to us and for giving us an update on what's happening with you and with your family and with what's happening in gospel work in Africa. Um, I hope that gets you excited to know that in spite of how things look in the world, how grim things look at times, our God is still on the throne. He's still rescuing souls. People's lives are being changed because of the gospel, and uh, it's good stuff, and I thank you for coming and sharing that with us. I want to, before you open your, well, you can open your Bibles to Genesis 46, I want to speak to two things this morning first. How many of you in this room are registered to vote? I want to speak to you about that this morning. Um, it's a privilege to be able to vote, is it not? As long as they're giving us that privilege, I think we better exercise it, right? I'm going to challenge you in the next week and a half to do your research about the two statewide issues that our state will vote on. I want to be clear that I'm not telling you how to vote this morning. Don't leave here and say, PD told us how to vote this morning. I'm telling you to be wise and do your research. There are clear moral implications in both of those issues. Amen. Clear. Both issues will have a profound effect on families in our state. And there are things that you and I as believers, as those who carry the name of Christ, ought to care about deeply. And if you were deciding on whether it was worth it or not to go vote, let me just give you a little swift kick in the pants. Go vote. Go vote. But be educated in your vote. And then I want to speak to what for me this week surprisingly came as a big blow. I was expecting it. <laughs> but... We did lose a dear brother this week. Many of you in this room do not have the joy and have not had the opportunity, but one day if you're in Christ, you will have the opportunity to meet Charlie Williams. But for those of us who knew him, I think to a person, I think if you knew Charlie Williams, you were thankful to have known him and call him a friend. Is that not true? God used him mightily in the founding of this church. It is not a stretch to stay that because we are here meeting today, a lot of it is, is that we are standing on the shoulders of Charlie Williams and other men who took a brave stand in the early 70s in this community. What many of you don't realize is, is that Charlie took a stand against apostasy in a denomination of churches and he took a lot of guff in this community. He was ostracized by many in this community. And, and Johnstown has always been this small, kind of tight-knit, us for and no more community. And he was kind of put on the outside of that because he stood for truth. Today, he walks in the glory by sight. <laughs> for the last couple of years, his world got very small. Very small. He lost his eyesight. Even in his retirement years, Charlie was a profound reader. He consumed books. I can remember going to see him after he lost his eyesight, and he would be there with his reader, and he would be having books read to him. Every time I saw Charlie, 
he had one question for me. How is the church doing? How is the church doing? And he always had one admonition to me. Keep preaching the word, Pastor Dan. I just saw him a week and a half ago. And I said to him, Charlie, is there anything I can do for you? And he just, with a very weak voice, couldn't even open his eyes, laying in a hospital bed in his bedroom, he whispered up to me, keep preaching the word. I have no doubt this morning that Charlie has joined that group of believers in Hebrews chapter 12. And he is saying this morning, keep preaching the word. And so, I would ask you to give thanks to God for the faithfulness, His faithfulness to Charlie, His faithfulness in Charlie being a blessing to so many, and that you would pray for his wife, Norma, and his children. Charlie has one desire in his funeral, and that is that the gospel would be preached because Charlie knows he has unsaved family members. Would you pray specifically about that? Would you pray specifically that God would use his word this week to challenge their hearts? So if you're new here this morning, that's kind of out of the ordinary. I don't usually begin <laughs> that my message is that way, but so I forgive, ask me to forgive me, but it's hit me heavy this week. Lost a dear friend, a dear friend. He was the one guy in this church that I knew when everything was falling apart, he would be the one guy who would call me and say, hang in there, PD, it's okay. We need men like that. So we go to Genesis chapter 46 this morning. And Jacob steps back onto the stage, if you will, of the book of Genesis. It seems like for, for several weeks now as we've been preaching through the book of Genesis, and if, and if you're newer here, this is, this is our pattern. We preach through books of the Bible, and we do it unapologetically because, because we feel like it's really important that, that we get a whole sense for that book and what God has put in His Word. And in the very first book of the Bible, I think it's a pretty important one. In fact, what's taking place in the Middle East, if you don't understand the book of Genesis, you don't have a good lens for what's going on in the Middle East today. This all goes back to, to stuff that happened in Genesis. And it's not going to get resolved until Jesus comes. Can I just say this to you also? This is free, by the way. There's a lot of bad theology going around with all this stuff going on in Israel. There's a lot of bad theology being, yes, we should be looking for Christ's return. But if you read the book, if you read the end of the book, this book, the Bible, you will see that no one stands with Israel at the end. By God's grace, there still are a few who are standing with Israel. And it's always wise to be on the side of those who stand with Israel. But don't be a victim of bad theology. Search the scriptures, whether those things be so. That was free. But this morning, as Jacob... Now, as he makes the return, or not the return, but the trip to Egypt, we're going to see God giving him a clear command, and it's a command that speaks to every single one of us. It's a command that's repeated throughout the scriptures, because it's something that you and I all wrestle with. We wrestle with fearful hearts. Anybody brave enough in this room to say you've never been afraid? 
We all wrestle with fearful hearts, don't we? And God comes to Jacob in a moment of fear, and and He reassures him, and I find that so comforting this morning, and we're going to see that in the Word. But this morning, I want to read Genesis 46, and you say, why are we going to read this PD? It's full of a bunch of names that you know you can't pronounce. Well, what's interesting about this and why we really need to read this is, is because I want you to see just how few people go into Egypt, and at the end of this message, we're going to compare that with how many people eventually come out. There's so few of amount of people that are going into the land that they can be listed in a chapter of Scripture here, not even a long chapter. And what we're going to see is that God's going to take his remnant and he's going to put them in a place that you and I would not think to be a very safe environment, a place almost, if you will, an ark of safety. Think about our world today. Would you consider Egypt to be an ark of safety for a Jewish nation? God did. (laughs) And so let's read Genesis 46 this morning and then we'll spend the rest of our time this morning unpacking this text. Let's back up to the last verse of chapter 45. Israel, that's another name for Jacob. That is the covenant name that God gave to him, Israel. Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Pelu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Mirari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulon, Sered, Elon, and Jaleel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and paid Anaram together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Melchiel. These are the sons of Ziphah, who Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and she bore to Jacob sixteen persons. 
the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppim, Huppim, and Ard. Sounds like a bad name for dwarfs or something, doesn't it? <laughs> I heard you chuckling. I mean... Moms and dads, these are names not to name your children. <laughs> Verse 22, these are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all, the sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Daphtali, Jehiel, Guni, Jezer, and Shalem. These are the sons of Bilhah, who Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray that even in this passage of Scripture this morning that we wouldn't get lost in, in the names and, and just that listing of the men and women that you took into Egypt, but Lord, that we might see much bigger than the people there, the hand of God in all of this. Might we see you as the promise-keeping God? Might we, even, even as we sang just prior to this, might we be people who walk by faith? And Lord, when our faith is weak, I pray that you would do for us what you have done for Jacob, which you do for us in the word, that you would come and that you would bring your promises to bear so that we might be a people who, who lives by faith, walks by faith, eventually dies by faith and are glorified by faith, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jacob packs everything up. We see that here at the beginning of this text. He packs everything up. And he is leaving the land of promise. And, and as we read this, I don't know that this really sinks in like it really should for us. I want you to keep your finger here and go back to chapter 35. And I want you to see, because a lot of what we see in this text this morning has to refer us back, further back into the word and what God has said. And, and in chapter 35, we see where, where Jacob is at Bethel. And remember what happens at Bethel there, right? He, he goes to Bethel and he offers sacrifice at an altar there. And, and in verse 12, well, actually in verse 11, God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. He's saying this directly to Jacob. 
The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. That is the promise of God. That's the clear promise of God. But now, when we come to chapter 46, it seems like the dream has died. The land has been promised by God, but the famine is so bad in the land that that not only does Jacob just leave for a while, he leaves with everything. When you pack up and leave with everything, do you really have any true hope that you're coming back? And so Jacob leaves the land of promise. The land that had been promised to him, and he might be tempted to doubt. Have you ever been tempted to doubt God? You're not human if you haven't been tempted to doubt God. And honestly, putting yourself in Jacob's frame of mind right here, there's, there's a lot of mixed emotions going on. Can you imagine how excited he is knowing that when he gets to the end of this journey, he's going to be reunited with Joseph? But also, can you imagine just how sad he is to be leaving the place that God has promised to him? It's a fearful thing, too. He's not leaving anything behind in that land except for the graves of his loved ones. It's the only thing he's leaving there. Packing up everything, and he's he's literally journeying, journeying away to a place where he's not promised that he's coming back from. As I was thinking about that this week, and I found this to be true in my life, and I think it's a scriptural principle, and I I think it just really needs to come to bear right here. When God asks us to take a step of faith, it's usually accompanied with this personal battle with fear. Anybody else found that to be true? When God asks us to take a step of faith, there is always a little bit of a fear factor in it, isn't there? And that's what, that's what Jacob is wrestling with here. And I love what he does. He goes to Beersheba. I'm like, okay, what, what does that mean? Well, Beersheba is a significant place. Beersheba is a place that that God has proven himself over and over and over in the book of Genesis. I think the first time that I mentioned Beersheba must have been like 10 years ago, earlier when we were preaching through Genesis. Come on, be honest, you feel like it's been 10 years, don't you? Yeah. When I first mentioned Beersheba, I think I said this, Mark Beersheba, it's a significant place. And it is. Because it's there that Abraham made a covenant with Abimelech and he planted a tree and it's where he committed there to obey God and to sacrifice. It's also the place where Isaac, Jacob's father, had come to. He saw the Lord there and he built an altar there. Jacob has heard about Beersheba over and over. In fact, Jacob lived in Beersheba before he went out to go seek his wife and he came back with two wives and a couple other wives. He lived in Beersheba. That's the place that he launched from. And it's here, before he leaves the land, it's the place where Abraham has sacrificed. It's the place where Isaac has sacrificed. If it's good enough for his grandfather, if it's good enough for his father, it's good enough for him. And he stops there and he offers a sacrifice. 
God asks us to take faith steps. He does. The New Testament is full of it. It, it, The New Testament tells us we walk by faith and not by sight, right? God is is continuously asking us to take faith steps. For some, they're little baby steps. For some of us, they're giant steps sometimes. But whenever you are asked to take a step of faith, I think it's good to learn a lesson here from Jacob. It's good to get somewhere where you are reminded of the faithfulness of God. Now, I don't necessarily think that's a physical location anymore. Maybe it is for you. Maybe it is for you. But I think the place that God would drive us to is His Word, where we can remember the faithfulness of our God. And so, as he is leaving the land, he stops in Beersheba, and, and, and as, he's, as he's there, and look at verse 1, he offers sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And what does God do? Verse 2. God comes to him in his fear. There's something that I know about fear. Because I wrestle with it a lot. There is no way, there, there is no way that you have enough gumption or will in you to defeat your fear yourself. We live in a world that that is increasingly coming to to grips with this. The number one seller of pharmaceuticals after heart disease is what? Anti-anxiety meds. Why? Because our world doesn't know how to deal with fear. Sadly, many believers don't know how to deal with fear. We don't. Let's be honest. Can we just be honest with ourselves? We don't deal with fear well. Anybody else? We just don't deal with it well. The problem is, is we're trying to deal with it ourselves. The first step to dealing with fear is to to recognize this. You can't beat fear. But you have a God who can and does. Notice what God does comes to him, he says, Jacob, Jacob. And in verse 3, he says, I am God. Now, you're like, okay, he's identified himself. But, but what has he done here? What he has done here is he has identified himself as Elohim, the all-powerful creator God. You want to know the number one way that you and I will defeat fear is by having a proper view of who God is. And you know what? We'll stop fearing the things that we fear and we'll fear Him. And I want to tell you this. When you start fearing Almighty God, those fears seem pretty small. And so now, here He is. And He has come right to Him and He's woken Him up with the vision in the middle of the night. And he says, I am Elohim. I'm the Creator God. I'm the God who keeps my word. I'm the all-powerful one. I'm the one who's talking to you right now, Jacob. And then he says this. Don't be afraid. Now stop there. How many of you, when you're battling your anxiety, have come and talked to a, a, a loser pastor like me, and he has said to you, 
Well, let's read Matthew 6, where Jesus says three times, let's not be afraid, and you, have, and you have just, in your own heart, you have honestly said this, yeah, right. Been there? We forget who spoke the words. It was Jesus who quieted the waves <laughs> by a word. It was Jesus who conquered death. And it was God Almighty speaking to Jacob here who says the words to us, Do not be afraid. But you don't understand God. No, do not be afraid. No one has ever been, Do not be afraid. The odds are, do not be afraid. But what I love about what God does here, because I can identify with Jacob. Anybody else identify with Jacob? I'm a hard learn. Jacob has been a hard learn all of his life, has he not? He's not been a quick understudy, has he? And what God does is he reassures him in four ways, and I love what he does here. We battle fear, and notice the reasons that he gives to Jacob to not fear. Number one is, he says, I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to make you a great nation. Do you see it? You see it there in verse 3? Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. In other words, hey, the promise is still in effect. I'm going to do it. But notice there's a different nuance in this promise. The promise was first given to Abraham, then it was reaffirmed to Isaac, and it's been reaffirmed to Jacob several times throughout the book of Genesis. And the assumption has been, where is God going to make him a great nation? In what land? In Israel. Where is God choosing to make him a great nation? In Egypt. There's a funny thing about steps of faith. Steps of faith sometimes don't make a lot of sense. Right? This step of faith makes no sense. God, we've got a perfectly good land here. All you need to do is give us a little rain and we're good. No, God's plan is no, I'm going to take you down to Egypt and I'm going to make you a great nation there. A lot of times our fear is caused by the fact that we want everything to make sense and line up by our own human reason. And what I have found in the course of my life is God doesn't always work that way. He always works in the best way. And if it makes sense to me, probably it's probably not a good plan. Right? God's going to accomplish it in a different way. And isn't that just like God? Because God always does it so that God himself gets the primary glory. So don't be afraid because the promise is still in fact. Keep going with me here now. So verse 4, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. Keep your finger here and go back to chapter 28. This isn't the first time Jacob's heard something like this. Chapter 28. When Jacob is dreaming there in, in Beersheba, Actually, he's left Beersheba, and he's at Bethel. When he's dreaming the dream, notice what God says to him in chapter 28 and verse 15. Behold, I am with you, 
and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Did, did God make true on that, that promise to him? Did he leave and go up to Padan Aram to get his wives and did he end up coming back? Remember how fearful it was to come back when he had to cross into the land and, and he sends the whole family in front of him because he's such a brave man? And he sends the whole family in front of him before he crosses over into the land because Esau's on the other side there too. But remember how God was faithful through all of that? Child of God, has God been faithful to you? Can you look back over the course of your life and see where God has clearly been faithful to you? Why would he not be then in the future? Why? Is he just going to suddenly change his character? That's not the God I serve. It's not the God I love. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yeah, my fear may be different today, but he is still the same. And he says this, I'm going with you. That's enough. That's enough. And then he reminds him, thirdly, and he says this, I'm not going to leave you there. Didn't he tell him that once before? I'm not going to leave you outside the land. Now, this is a different one. Yeah, you're not coming back alive to this land, but you will come back. Because that's the fourth thing he tells him. He says this, you're going to be reunited with Joseph. And what he says there to him there at the end of verse 4 is, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. What, he is, what he's saying to him there is, is this beautiful prophecy. You're going to die a peaceful death with your most loved one on this earth right next to you. Can I say this? The remedy for fear is faith. We all know that, right? That wasn't an instant revelation this morning, was it? Not like you walked away and like, oh, hashtag, PD, just mic drop. No, we know the remedy for fear is faith. But you want to know why we wrestle with fear so much? Look up here. Stop believing what the world is telling you about why you're afraid. Can I just tell you clearly why you're afraid? You and I wrestle with fear because our faith isn't rooted in something big enough and deep enough. You see, what I know to be true is this. There are times in our lives that will cause us to fear, but if we truly are God's child, it won't shake us to where we stop believing or we begin to doubt the Word of God. Those who are truly in Christ are truly kept by His power, are they not? And I'm going to be honest with you, one of the reasons that believers wrestle with fear so much is this, and say, man, you're hitting hard this morning, because I'm hitting my own heart. One of the reasons we wrestle with fear so much is this, because we won't do the hard work to go back into the Word of God and claim the promises of God. It's a lot easier to pop a pill that leaves us feeling like a zombie. It's a lot harder 
whenever I'm struggling with real life to actually dive into the Word of God and, and, to, and to cry out to God in my desperation and say, I trust you and you alone. And I'm convinced of this. Our enemy doesn't want us to do that. So he makes all these other things so appealing. Here's a quick fix for you. Jacob acts in faith. He leaves the land of promise in obedience to God. Not sure if he's ever coming back. Not sure if, his, his, if he's, the promise is going to be, and he will never know. He's going to die not knowing. But I will tell you this, properly placed faith always leads to obedient action. Let me say that again. Properly placed faith always leads to obedient action. And the reverse of that is true. If you're not being obedient, then your faith is probably not placed in the proper place. So now what do we do with this list? Like, why, after this great affirmation from God, does the Holy Spirit place this list here? Well, I kind of hinted at it at the beginning. And then if you're a math person like I am, in verse 26, he says 66 people, and then in verse 27, he says 70. So which is it, God? Right? Verse 26, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's wives and sons, were 66 persons in all, and then he says there's 70 that, that came in. Well, there's 66 who come, but in the list we don't have Jacob included, and Joseph and his two sons are already where? They're already in Egypt. So, so don't try to poke holes in the scripture and like God can't even get his math right. No, he gets his math right every time. So, this clan of people that is about 70 strong hardly seems like the promise given to Abraham many years ago, right? Like, your, your offspring are going to be like the sands of the desert or like the stars in the sky. I can count 70. I can't, probably can't get much higher than 70, but I can count 70, Right? Go with me to Exodus chapter 12. Go with me to Exodus chapter 12. And I want you to see this. So this is, this is after the 10th plague has hit. The death angel has gone through Egypt and the first, firstborn have been killed. And they've celebrated Passover. And basically the Egyptians basically say to Israel, get out. And they hand them their wealth on the way out. Okay? And I want you just to see verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. You're like, okay, so 600,000, 70 to 600,000, but, but that's just men, okay? And whenever the, the Old Testament refers to men, it's usually fighting men who are over 20 years old. 
So if you're a conservative math person, you can do the math and you can easily come up with over 2 million people. All of a sudden, 400 years later, we now have a group of people that are, can't, they're like the stars in the heavens. They're like the sand on the seashore, are they not? They go into Egypt a clan and they leave a nation. Why do I point that out to us? Because God always, 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 always keeps his word. And so the promises that God has given to us in his word are, are meant for us and God intends to keep them and we need to believe in a bigger God than what we typically believe in. You know what the big problem with fear is? Fear, fear absolutely will dominate our minds. Will it not? Some of you, you are afraid of germs. Right now you are afraid that you're sitting in a cesspool of germs. It's good for you. It will build immunity. Some of you are afraid of what's happening with the next election and what's going to happen. I've got news for you. God on the throne is not worried about the outcome of the November election. He's not. Some of you are worried about how you're going to put food on your table. That's a legit fear, is it not? Remember what Jesus said? If God so clothes the grass of the field and he takes care of the birds of the air, will he not take care of his own? Is that an empty promise, church? Is that a real promise? Some of you are afraid about your health. Legitimate concerns, right? I've just been reminded this week about the frailty of our health. What's the worst thing that can happen to you, child of God, if you have a bad health diagnosis? Go ahead and say it. Die and go to heaven. That sounds like a win for me, doesn't it for you? And let's be honest, that's easy to say on a Sunday morning sitting in church with other believers. Monday when we go out into the world, fears get a little bit more fierce, don't they? Which is why every day we need to pick up the number one fear defense that there is and rest in the promises of God. Say, PD, that sounds like you're telling us to take two Bible verses and call me in the morning. No, I'm not. That's not what I'm telling you to do. I am telling you to see God as bigger and to fear Him and to know more about your God and His Word so that you aren't afraid of the things all around you that are begging for your fears. We're made to fear. The thing is, we're fearing the wrong thing. We're made to fear God. We're made to worship Him. And when we choose to fear something else, we're making that an idol in our life. And I know none of you wants to be an idolater, do you? Notice how this chapter ends. Joseph and Jacob get that reunion. Oh, I bet that was sweet. Verse 29 says that, that Joseph presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a good while. 
that's probably underselling the moment. <laughs> Can I just say this? Some of you in this room, I know this because I've been praying for you, and some of you, maybe I don't even know this, but maybe true in your life, you are, you are longing for a reunion with somebody who's been estranged from you. Jacob had to wait a long time. And how good is God to bring those two together? And if God would do it for Jacob, can we just have enough faith to believe that he would do it for you? And notice it was all that Jacob needed in verse 30. Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Like, I, I can leave this earth. And what Joseph does here sets up chapter 47 for us. And he says, he says to his brothers, okay, here's what we're going to do. You guys are in the land of Goshen, which by the way, for a farmer, Goshen was the perfect place. God takes his chosen people out of a really rough situation, and he doesn't just take them into another rough situation, he takes them to a place where it's going to actually meet their needs. And what we see here, look at the last phrase of the chapter, for every shepherd is an abomination for the Egyptians. Well, that's not good. But God even uses that for his people's good. And literally, Joseph has gone ahead to Egypt to be the savior for his people. Sound like anybody else you know? Anybody thinking with me here? Joseph was sent away years ago for this very time and this very opportunity to provide for his family a place of safety. Egypt becomes a place of safety for Israel. That doesn't even seem to say, be right to say that in a sentence, right? And in all of this, Joseph points us to Christ who himself purchased our redemption and he purchased for us a place of safety. See, whether you realize it or not this morning, every single one of us in this room needs a place of safety. We need a refuge. We need, we need a place that, that we can be safe, I mean like secure. And that place is only found in Christ and Christ alone. And even for those of us who have found a place of safety in Christ, we still wrestle with fear, do we not? We battle it every single day. And you and I can't just snap our fingers and make fear go away. There's got to be something greater that drives our fears away. And it's got to be a big God. It's got to be a big God. Because if you're using anything else to drive your fear away, you are going to get eaten up by your fear. I got good news for us. We have a big God. <laughs> we have a big God. Jacob had a big God, and that big God loved him enough to come and reassure him. 
And maybe you needed this this morning. Maybe you needed reassured. Don't, don't take it my words. These are the words of God. Maybe God's speaking to you today. Don't be afraid to do this. This is what I'm calling you to do. Just like God was with Jacob when he took him right into Egypt, God is with us. If you are his child, he is not abandoning you. He's with you and will be with you and will not leave you because he loves you that much. Is that good stuff or not? That's good stuff. Father, how good are you to come to Jacob in his deepest fears and confirm your promise to him? And how good are you to give us your word that confirms your promise to us? Forgive us because we're weak. We, we give in to our fears. We, we make them little idols that we worship, and we don't worship you, the one true, all-powerful, fear, just fear-destroying God. Lord, if I can pray any way at all for us today, I would pray this. Make us fear you more than we fear anything else, I pray. For those who aren't in Christ, may they fear you to the point that they run to Christ to find their salvation. For those of us who have found Christ to be our salvation, forgive us for not resting daily in him. Give us a big view of what an awesome God you are, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.